0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Who is Jesus? That is the topic for this morning and as part of our non-negotiables series. So... I think that that video is now a classic of contemporary Christian music. How many of you saw the DC Talk Boys back in the day? This is not a confessional. I mean, this is like, they were cool, right? Um, They were one of my first concerts, so good times. Um, People have always had an opinion about Jesus, People have always had an opinion about Jesus. Right from the first days that he was on Earth, people had an opinion about him. Do you remember King Herod was terrified about Jesus? And Jesus was what? He was a baby, and Herod was terrified of him. So right from his birth, people have been making claims about who Jesus is and trying to figure out who Jesus is. And that continues to this day. Who is Jesus? Since the earliest days, people have asked this question, who is Jesus? And this image up here, this Finding Jesus, has anybody seen the promos for this? This is a current series on CNN, started last Sunday night. Just happened to work out great timing for today's message. It says, Finding Jesus, Faith, Fact, Forgery, CNN show. And what they're doing is they're bringing together um, uh, science and archaeology to offer insights into ancient artifacts that may be linked to Jesus Christ. So right up to the current day, people are asking, who is Jesus? And they're looking for insights. They're looking for connections to try to figure out who Jesus is. Well, a few years ago, this book came out. Stephen Nichols wrote this book. He's a Christian. He's a professor, And uh, in 2008, he published his book. And if you can't read it, it's called Jesus Made in America. So, Jesus Made in America. And what he shows is this historical overview. He's mostly a historian. And he shows this historical overview about the ways that people have interpreted Jesus Christ. Not in world history, but in the history of America. And so I'm just going to really quickly cover this and show you the different ways. And this is basically the main ways that um, our culture, so the American culture, has thought about Jesus. And these are like the main ways that we've thought about Jesus as a country. So the first one is Puritan Jesus. So in the first, the Puritans, they come over and they're settling there on the east coast of the United States and they're setting up this, uh, this new great experiment and they're coming to the new world. They had a fixed view of Jesus and they really emphasized, you know, we know that Puritans kind of, we think of them as this very harsh lifestyle and very fixed and very firm ways of life, but they really did seek to balance this whole idea that Jesus was both divine, and human. And we see this balance that they constantly are going between as they think about the fact that Jesus is both divine and human. So they would talk about Jesus both as the friend of sinners, but they would balance that by talking about Jesus as a righteous judge. So we skip forward and we have Jesus. For a new republic, if you're finding a new country, it's great to have people to look to as positive examples and role models, and who better than Jesus? And so um, Nichols goes through and shows how, how Franklin, Jefferson, and Washington were not afraid to use Jesus as an example, as a role model for how to live in a new society. Jesus was not just an example of you know how to be a great statesman, but Jesus. You know, no matter what stage you were in society, what rank you had in society, Jesus could be an example for you. If you were a humble worker in a field or a tradesman, Jesus was an example of personal piety and devotion. Jesus was hardworking and honest and fair. Well, those are important values if you're starting a new society, right? But you know, if you're a statesman, Jesus also is noble and you can follow him and trust in him. We start to see, though, that in emphasizing all of this virtue and morality and industrious and honest Jesus, they didn't really think about Jesus too much as a righteous judge. kind of were starting to get away from that idea. And they also were kind of fuzzy on if Jesus was really divine. Let's not be too worried about that part, because Jesus is really somebody that we can focus on as a good and moral, hardworking person. Well, as the U.S. expanded westward and as the frontier is opening up, there was this whole idea of a Victorian Jesus. So Jesus, for a while, was this rugged frontiersman. So if you kind of had the general understanding of Jesus, I mean, he was on the frontiers of society, and he was kind of presented as this rugged Jesus. But then it kind of switched with the Victorians, and Jesus suddenly became meek and mild. And if you think back to some of our favorite Christmas carols, This is Victorian Jesus. He's so loving and kind. And their favorite picture of Jesus was baby Jesus with his fists balled up. So cute and kind and loving. He's so domesticated. And so... During this period, I mean, this is, this is, remember, this is popular culture. How is the popular culture referring to Jesus? So Victorian Jesus was uh, very domesticated. But then what happened in the early 20th century, especially the 1920s and the 1930s, this huge um, battle erupted within the church and kind of was in with wider culture of how do we understand Jesus? Jesus. And this was liberal versus conservative Jesus. And so there was a very, very famous uh, sermon that was preached in 1922 by Harry Emerson Fosdick who preached a sermon called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And you, if you Google I just Googled it this morning. If you Google it, you can get a full version of that sermon still. Because it was hugely influential. It captured... Um, uh, that was a point of real debate within American society about who Jesus was in 1920s. Was Jesus, um, as, as, as uh, Emerson Fosdick would say, was he just an example to follow, a good and moral guide for our life? You know, he presented this very liberal Jesus where Jesus didn't make huge claims on your life. You could just follow him. He was just a good example. He was a fine person to think about have a devotion every day on Jesus. He, he wrote a devotion where you could have a little devotional thought about Jesus. But let's not get too crazy. I mean, let's not say that Jesus was divine. Let's not say that he's the only way. And this stirred a ferocious debate and response within the church. And the most famous response came in a book by a man called J. Gresham Machen, who was a theologian and a pastor who wrote this book, Christianity versus Liberalism. And he basically said, all of that stuff, all this liberal Jesus, he said, that's not even fit to be called Christianity. He said, Christianity itself demands much more. It demands that we see Jesus as fully divine Let's get away from this whole idea that Jesus is just a good person and an example to follow, that he had some good teachings and we can meditate on those. He said, Jesus is fully divine. He is the only way to God the Father. And unless we surrender our lives to him, we cannot even call ourselves Christians. You can still get that book. It's a really good read. Fast forward a few decades. We have Jesus people, Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus, people, Jesus came out of the 60s hippie movement. And this Jesus was a reaction against the stuffy, formal church Jesus that people didn't like very much. And so Jesus, people, Jesus was really cool. He's just somebody that you hang out with, give him a hug. He's just really cool. And then that kind of morphed into what we saw just a moment ago contemporary christian music jesus who is kind of everywhere in culture and jesus is cool because he's in our music videos hollywood has never been afraid to talk about jesus so you know there's there's really recent Movies, like uh, we might think of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, or go back just a little bit further, Martin Scorsese, The Last Temptation of Christ. But if you go back to 1927, the Cecil B. DeMille uh, movie, The King of Kings, Hollywood has not been afraid to present Jesus and to present him in their image. Um, If you think, too, about musicals such as Godspell or Jesus Christ Superstar. Popular culture, yeah, let's take Jesus. That's fine. We can do what we like with him. Well, it's not just Hollywood and the entertainment industry. Today we have Jesus CEO, hashtag what would Jesus do? (laughs) Where Jesus is basically another brand. Jesus is just something that you sell. Um, Jesus said that people would know that we were his followers because of our love for one another. But I think today, often it's, they know that we follow Jesus because of our t-shirts. Right? Right? Right. Do you have a lot of Christian t-shirts? I actually think I saw that on a (laughs) t-shirt. And then, most recently, we have right-wing Jesus. So what's interesting is, even though Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world... Political parties like to claim that Jesus is on their side. So, time and again throughout history, people have said, this is Jesus and he agrees with me. And not been afraid to refashion Jesus to fit whatever cause happens to be the cause of the day or something that we're interested in. And people today are asking who Jesus is, or at least they have an opinion on who Jesus is. You know, people may not broadly in our society come to church as much as they used to, but it doesn't mean they haven't heard the name Jesus, and it doesn't mean that they don't have an opinion about who he is. That opinion might not be very biblically based. That opinion might be kind of weird, but they probably have some idea in their mind, when you say the name Jesus, they probably at least have some idea of who he is or what he might be about. And so for us as Christians in the church, it's really important that we know who Jesus is based on the scripture And today we're going to look specifically at the Nicene Creed, which really helps to outline who Jesus is. And we're not just going to look at who Jesus is this morning. It's actually going to extend for the next um, three weeks beyond this one to really get at who is Jesus, because that's critical and it's at the heart of the Christian faith. So what do we know about Jesus? We know a few things about Jesus from his life story. And just very, very quickly, we know... Um, that he came and we know when he lived, we know where he lived. We know a few things about his life. We know the story of his birth. We celebrate that every Christmas. We have a couple of scenes from his childhood. We know that he had a profession, that he was a carpenter or a laborer. And we know that between 30 and 33, he had a very public ministry ministry that ultimately led to his death. And then later we see the story of his resurrection. And there's very, very few people today that would doubt that somebody called Jesus lived in this time period and in this place. There's very few people that debate that. Now, they might debate a few bits and pieces around the edge of that story, like we saw with the CNN documentary. But the real question is, not did somebody called Jesus live about 2,000 years ago. The question is, what does his life actually mean? And that's what people have been trying to figure out. Now, the story of Jesus, on the one hand, is quite familiar for the time period. So he's living in, um, in Judea yeah, about 2,000 years ago, and there were lots of people who decided to become a rabbi or become a teacher. So on the one hand, Jesus' story is not that remarkable, that he felt called by God, Appeared to be an ordinary guy, called by God, becomes a teacher, has some followers, ticks off the authorities, and gets himself killed. That happened a lot. There was a lot of people who felt called by God, had a message, got some followers, and got killed because they were a challenge to the authorities. And yet, in the life of Jesus, there are some things that go way beyond this. There are some facts about his life that go way beyond this simple story. The story of his birth is really remarkable. And we know this from the Christmas story. There are angel visits, there are wise men, there are kings, there are extravagant gifts, a virgin birth, and there's exile to a foreign land. All right, that's different. That's pretty different. The scene from his childhood Age 12, Jesus is in the temple debating with the religious leaders. Well, how does he have all of this knowledge? Age 12, could be a really smart kid. When he has his public ministry, it's accompanied by signs and wonders where Jesus is healing people. And not just like really easy healings, things that are legitimately public, Eyes being opened, ears being opened so that people could hear. Lame people who are able to walk. Jesus also seems to really freak out demons. Some of the earliest witness that Jesus is divine is through the demonic realm. Jesus also talks and calls himself, you know, is very very comfortable with his title of the son of God. And he seems to talk about his relationship with God in a very unique way. He calls God Father. And he seems to talk about God in a way that he really knows him. And Jesus speaks with an authority that is unusual, even for that time. Um, He also talks as if he's existed for a very long time. At one point, he has an exchange with the religious teachers, and they're talking about the authority of Abraham, and Jesus said, well, before Abraham was, I am. Excuse me? Before Abraham was, I am? Well, that's doubly offensive. Like, one, clearly you're offending the intellect of these people standing in front of you because they say, well, you can't be more than 30 years old. How can you say that you've lived for thousands of years That was the first offense, but it was nothing compared to the second offense of that statement because Jesus used the word I am. Uh, We just sang about it a few minutes ago. I am is a word that is only used by God to talk about himself. And Jesus very intentionally used that word to refer to himself as having divine nature. So if you go around and you say things like that, you either are divine or you're crazy. And so if you are divine, to put it frankly, you have to have some way to back up and prove that you're not crazy, right? And so we see time and again that Jesus demonstrates that he has this relationship with God, that he is healer. And ultimately, the most incredible and fulfilled expression of the fact that Jesus was divine and backed up everything he said and did was through his resurrection. Jesus died on a cross and he was buried in the ground. What power does Jesus have at that point? None. Absolutely none. And if Jesus stays in the grave, he's just like all those other guys. Right? Said a few things, authorities got mad, let's get rid of this guy, except that God, the Father, raises him from the dead, and because he raises him from the dead, he vindicates absolutely everything about Jesus, and Jesus completely entrusts himself into the Father's care, and God vindicates Jesus by raising him from the dead. And that's what our faith rests on. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is really clear. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what are we doing? Our faith is in vain. So let's read the Nicene Creed. We're going to focus on this creed for a little bit this morning. So let's maybe stand together and let's say the creed together this morning. Can I shake off the first service? All right. All right, let's say this together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us meant our salvation, came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end and i believe in the holy ghost the lord and giver of life who proceeds from the father and the son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. He may be seated. So this morning, we're focusing on this part of the Nicene Creed. One Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So the Nicene Creed emerged from a meeting of about 250 to 300 bishops from May 25th to June 19th, 325 AD in a place called Nicaea. And at this Council of Nicaea, they had to meet together to figure out a really crucial issue for the life of the church. And the section that we're looking at today is at the absolute heart of the matter. This is why they had to meet. What we just read together was what they figured out, and it answered the fundamentally most important question that was happening in the church at the time that had to get figured out. So we're going to do a few minutes of church history here. I hope that's okay. But unless we do this, the value and the importance of this statement we just read won't make as much sense. So in the run-up to the Council of Nicaea in 325, there were a number of different people and groups who were making claims about Jesus. And these claims were competing with each other. So who was right? So one of the most important people was a guy called Arius. Now Arius was a a bishop in North Africa and he was preaching things about Jesus. And he basically was saying that Jesus was separate from God the Father. He was saying that, that Jesus was not equal with God he was saying instead that God the Father was the only true God. He also thought the Holy Spirit was separate from God the Father, but that was not the most important point at this stage. He said that God the Father is the sole creator of all things, and the only God the Father is eternal. Okay. Well, this meant for Arius that Jesus was therefore not eternal, didn't create the world, was not equal with God and divine nature, And instead, Jesus should be considered as the first among the created creatures, special as the highest of creatures, but not divine. So Arius believed that Jesus was special. He still held on to that part. And that's why so many people listened to what he said. That's why he was so influential. He didn't just say Jesus means nothing. But what he did say is that Jesus... We can't elevate Jesus to full divinity. We just can't go there. And because we can't go there, we have to find some other category for Jesus to fit into. So let's make him the pinnacle of creation. Jesus is the highest, best person that's ever been created. So let's, let's call it that. And he, he even has some special abilities That most other people or nobody else really has had, but we can't call him God. So that's what Arius was preaching. So the Council of Nicaea gets together, and they have to figure out who's right. Is Arius right? Or do we go with the idea that Jesus is actually divine? So Arius didn't just come up with this all by himself, and this wasn't in a vacuum. So they were trying to figure out who was Jesus within their own culture, So they're in this cultural framework of Greek philosophy and Greek thought. So remember at the start I showed you all the different ways that Jesus has been interpreted through American history? Well, these folks are doing the same thing in their time, trying to figure out who's Jesus in the midst of this cultural background. And so in Greek thought, the natural world and the divine world had to be kept totally separate. So anything that's created like trees, plants, people, anything that has substance, anything that you can touch and feel and see, anything, Right, that's not pure. It's not holy. It's evil. And anything that is holy and divine has to be kept totally separate. Just can't even have, no association whatsoever. Well, That created a real problem in this culture when you thought about Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He fully has skin and bones and substance. Well, if he has all of this physical substance, that meant they thought he was, the Greek thought, they would say, well, he can't be divine. There's no way. Because to be divine is you're totally separate. And so there was this huge gulf between these two ideas. So there's no possible way for Arius that Jesus can be fully divine. Do you remember I said, you know, for Arius, he said, we can't go there. We can't make Jesus divine. Well, this was the reason. Because in his world and his culture's way of thinking, to be fully divine meant that you were basically a spirit that was just kind of out there and holy and not tied with anything physical. And so for Arius, he's trying to really come up with a way around this problem of Jesus being fully divine and fully human. So the two shall remain fully separate. So this is a really bad attempt to try to explain the feeling and the emotion behind this. <laughs> And never the two shall meet. Except sometimes we try to, right? We do this kind of thing. Ugh. It's terrible. Or even worse. Who would ever wear this T shirt? If you saw no, put your hand down. If you saw somebody wearing this t shirt, wouldn't you just what is wrong with you? So we're trying to bring together two things that just do not logically belong together. (laughs) So on this side, you are the Jesus is fully human. And you on this side are Jesus is fully divine. So let's hear you guys say, one, two, three, Jesus is fully human. So one, two, three. (laughs) Okay, let's say it. Let's really say it. Jesus is fully human. Okay, you guys ready? One, two, three. Jesus is fully divine. Okay, that's pretty good. Except to be truly faithful as a church, we need to say both together. So one, two, three, both together. One, two, three. Jesus is fully divine. And that's the tension that we live in. We've got to hold on to both. so the consul of Nicaea and I put the words up that we're looking at if you look closely at these words they just piece by piece just dismantled the argument of Arius they just said essentially we need to hold on to some core things about who Jesus is and uh, we're going to walk through what the main points so there's five main points that they make in this statement that we're reading together And the first one is that Jesus is one. A little bit of background on this. So because people are trying to figure out, is Jesus divine? Is he human? They would come up with these really elaborate ways of thinking about Jesus. And one of the most elaborate at the time was that Jesus was a regular guy. And then at his baptism, remember the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. So there was a train of thought where they said, well, at his baptism, God somehow poured a some special Holy Spirit, and then that point Jesus became the Messiah, and then he lived his life, and then, you know, at some point, well, some people think it stayed like that forever, and then other people think at some point then the Holy Spirit left. I mean, it's elaborate. But the idea is that Jesus was kind of like one person, then he was a different person, and at some point he's, you know, just a regular guy, and at other points he's not. They said, no, Jesus is one person. Jesus is one person. The second thing is that Jesus is of the same substance and equal with God the Father. So there's all sorts of technical Greek language stuff behind this, but basically what they're saying is Jesus is equal and the same as God the Father. And in that way, they said, Arius, your whole idea that Jesus is inferior to God, the Father, that is wrong. It's our understanding that Jesus is completely equal and the same as God the Father. Which, remember, is a huge challenge to Greek thought at the time. I mean, all these bishops came from Greek thought. I mean, their whole society was, keep these two things separate. They said, no, we got to keep these together. Jesus is unique, and they use this phrase, only begotten, to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus, that Jesus is unique in that he is of the same substance. And all these things kind of work together in this phrase. They also said that Jesus is eternal. And this was really, really important because Arius said, if Jesus is inferior to God the Father, then at some point God the Father created Jesus kind of as this whole separate thing. And they said, nope, Jesus has existed eternally you ever thought about the fact that Jesus existed before he was a baby? That he pre-existed? That he was with God the Father and the Holy Spirit in this perfect Trinitarian relationship? And then he came to earth. Took on the appearance of a human. And that was a one-time, a once-and-for-all decision. Because Jesus in his glorified state remains in appearance as a man. That Jesus will never go back to this pre-existent state that he had. That he made that decision once and for all. That he would always be in human appearance. And finally, that Jesus is creator. There was one thing that ancient people really knew well. It's that God, if you're going to be truly divine, part of the job description is that you created the world. I mean, that just goes with the territory. It's like, if you're the boss, then you're in control and you make decisions. If you're God, if you're divine, then you made the world. That just went along with it. And so they're affirming here that Jesus created everything and further reinforcing that he is divine. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, we won't go into it, but I just wanted to really explain why they were able to come to that point of affirming the divine nature of Jesus And especially here in verse 6, it said that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That line that he was equal with God, another way to translate it, he was in the form of God, that he was existing in the form of God. And this passage describes the equality that Jesus had with God how he then lowered himself and took on a different form. He took on the appearance of a man, humbled himself as a servant, servant. and then later, verses 9 to 11, we see that Jesus was exalted by God the Father so that he is worshipped and glorified. Now, I mentioned, too, that there were other There are other parts of the New Testament. It's not just this one passage in Philippians that talk about the importance of why we hold that that Jesus is divine. There are lots of other indications, and I've just listed a few of them here, as to why Jesus was able to make these claims to be divine. I mentioned at the start of the message that people claim Jesus to be whatever they want. That they fashion Jesus in whatever image they would like him to be in. What the Nicene Creed tells us is that Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully divine. And it's that fully divine piece that we're looking at today. Then next week, we get into the incarnation. The humanity of Jesus is going to be emphasized. So who is Jesus for the Nicene Creed? They sum it up. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is completely divine. And if there's a way that our society will, will kind of push us and generally think about Jesus, they might think of him as a good teacher, a good person to follow, that moral example, that guide, somebody to reflect on but they will typically fall short of saying that Jesus is divine. Because when you say Jesus is divine, you put him into this whole other category. And he makes completely different demands on your life if he's divine. But it's really important that we hold on to the divinity of Jesus. I'm going to outline for four reasons. First, we see the real knowledge of God revealed to us. You all know what God is like? Jesus. What better way for God to show the divine nature than to show up in flesh and blood and walk around and show us how to interact with each other? This is how God talks to people. God created food and drink. He wants you to enjoy them. God knows what it's like. To be one of us. We also, and this is so crucial, we also know that it was truly God who died in our place and not just another human. If Jesus isn't divine and he died in our place, so? So what? If that was just some other human being up there who had lived a good life and was killed, that, that has no meaning for you and me, right? Just another person who lived a good life, who died a violent death. But if Jesus is fully divine, then he alone can rightfully take our place and take the punishment of God. And we talk about this all the time, that Jesus took our sin upon himself our shame upon himself, that he is the mediator, the one who goes between us and God. Well, if you take the divinity part of that away, he has no right. He has no authority. His blood that is shed has no value if he's just another guy. If he's just another guy. No matter how good that life was that he lived, it has no value for us. We must hold on to the full divinity of Jesus. The divinity of Jesus also has other effects for our life. Because Jesus is fully divine, humanity and God have been fully reunited in a really tangible way. So remember back to the Garden of Eden, God and humanity, perfect relationship that gets totally destroyed. And for the whole of the Old Testament story, there's this deep yearning and longing. When will the full restoration of God and humanity come? When will it come? And you know when it comes? The birth of Jesus. Where God and humanity are fully united. In a foretaste of what is ultimately to come. (laughs) And that is good news, that God did not turn his back on us. That God fully associates with us. That God knows every trial, every tribulation. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be on the margins of society. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what pain is... I mean, the list goes on and on. And if you think that God doesn't care about your situation, look to Jesus because he has felt every emotion. He's been through every trial. The other thing that, and that, that Jesus and, and God coming to earth is, and being divine, it affirms the importance of creation. And this is really important because, you know that Greek thought where everything pure and holy is kind of out there and everything earthly is kind of evil and kind of we want to be done with that? Well, that idea still is in the church today. Because the vision of heaven that we're sold is Jesus is going to come and rescue us from this evil place. Really? If you read your Bible, at the very end, God comes to earth. And earth is redeemed. So if you live your life thinking that earth is bad and evil, that really affects how you live your life? And instead, when we see that earth itself has such value... And, and God has blessed it with his presence. It changes how you see the world and society and even the work that you do. And then finally, we see that worship of Jesus is appropriate. It's only appropriate if he's divine, right? Otherwise, we're worshiping some other guy. That doesn't make any sense. All right, let's stand and finish this morning in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks and praise this morning because you are divine and you are holy. And we praise you that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is also fully divine and holy. And God, pray that you would give us the ability to know the divine nature of Christ more fully. That we would not undermine the divinity of Jesus Christ but that in our hearts and in our minds we would see him as fully divine fully worthy of our praise we thank you God that you sent your only begotten son to this earth we thank you for his life for his death and for his resurrection that he is glorified and we worship him and put our full trust in him for our salvation thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed on our behalf. And we worship you and we look forward to your return and the kingdom that is to come. In your name we pray. Amen.